Hi, I'm Darcy Rowling, and welcome to the Women 17 podcast, conversations with global women changing the world, one sustainable development goal at a time. In each fortnightly interview, we'll learn about these women's journeys, challenges, successes, which SDGs their work contributes to, both globally and locally, as well as hear tips on how our listeners can participate in the advancement of the SDGs. Today, I'm really excited to speak with Dr. Claudia Seymour, an applied social researcher with over 20 years of experience working primarily in conflict-affected environments. Claudia's research specializes in youth, child protection, resilience to armed violence, children's disarmament, demobilization and reintegration, and young people's engagement with violence. Claudia's experience spans sub-Saharan Africa, and in addition to her extensive work with the United Nations and international NGOs and think tanks, she's also a trainer, lecturer, and senior researcher at the Graduate Institute in Geneva and at the University of London's School of Oriental and African Studies. Claudia also works with the Geneva Peace Building Platform and Geneva Peace Week. Claudia is also the author of The Myth of International Protection, a book based on a decade of her work as an international protection actor and researcher. This book tells the stories of young Congolese surviving violence and reflects on how international aid can do harm. So welcome, Claudia. Hi, Darcy. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, boy. And thank you so much for being here. This is my first podcast, so I'm really happy to have you here. And thanks so much for agreeing to, to show up today. So thank you. So, um, so as I mentioned, uh, all these wonderful things about Claudia's career, I should also mention that she's an amazing yoga instructor and has attempted to increase my flexibility and my mindfulness um, and posture over these past few years. And it's certainly a long journey for me, but uh, I'm getting there. So uh, um, it's a, a work in progress. So Claudia, um, you were born in Bermuda uh, to a Colombian mother and a Bermudian father. And, and then um, after you finished high school in Bermuda, you moved to the United States. So could you share a little bit about that journey, how you got to the U.S., and, and really, um, what was your field of study? Yeah, great. Well, by the time I arrived in the United States, I was with my 18 years old and wanted to study medicine. So I went to the best pre-med program that I could, which was Vanderbilt University, which was in Nashville, Tennessee. And as soon as I got to university, I got very involved in community service activities, so much so that I forgot to, to study organic chemistry. Um, so those pre-med aspirations soon gave way to anthropology and to political science. Um, but it was very rich those years. I was involved in, in tutoring English to newly arrived uh, migrants. I was doing a lot of mentoring with young people, sort of living in inner city uh, neighborhoods of Nashville. And also, and these were the early years of the internet, uh, I was involved in a project bringing internet technology to Native American reservations across the United States. Um, so these, these early sort of service activities as an undergraduate really honed my, my passion for, for working socially um, and engaging politically. Uh, after I finished university, I moved to China uh, this was two years where I spent teaching English and trying to understand a little bit more uh, the situation in Tibet. Uh, being there, I understood that, in fact, there was not much I could do to, to change the human rights situation in Tibet. So I 
instead focused my next phase of research and study on conflict management. Um, there, I went back to the United States to do a two-year master's program in conflict management at Johns Hopkins, and from there moved to New York, where I started my career with the United Nations. Oh, fantastic. Wow. What a, what a, what a journey. <laughs> and um, while you, you're not a, a medical doctor, you did end up getting your, your PhD, right? <laughs> so your parents are proud. Five years later, indeed. <laughs> oh, great. So, uh, you know, you, when, when I was young, um, I dreamed of going to China when I was a child and my dad had told me I could dig a hole um, and get to, to China by digging a hole in the backyard. So I enlisted the neighborhood kids. We dug for, I think, probably about two days before my dad had to admit that that just wasn't going to happen. So um, I did eventually get to China and spent most of my career in in, in China um, and uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, Southeast Asia. So um, your your career, although you did spend uh, quite a bit of time in China, um, your, your career really has been, the, the bulk of your career has really been in Sub-Saharan Africa. So um, were you always interested in this part of the world or how, how did you get to, to Sub-Saharan Africa? Yeah, I mean, I had always been interested and my first career posting was with uh, UNICEF in Liberia. That was in 2003. And it was just as the civil war there, ravaging war, uh, was ending. And so I was part of sort of the, the front line of aid workers sort of being flown in to rebuild the country. Um, I started there writing reports, donor reports, project proposals, and that eventually morphed into child protection work. And that's truly where I found my, my passion. Uh, much of my work was in relating to protecting children from, from violence, uh, helping to get children out of the armed groups and supporting their reintegration back into their, their home families, quote unquote, civilian life. Wow. That's interesting. And um, uh, so I, I would imagine that that through, you know, this research uh, that you did and, and working for UNICEF and other NGOs, um, you know, you you really saw a lot of young people that were seriously affected by by conflict and, and violence. And um, particularly as you did the research for your book, uh, The Myth of International Protection, um, I, I'd wonder if you'd mind sharing a story of one of the um, young Congolese that you met with and and this uh, young person's journey um, as you did your research for your book. Yeah, well, great. So what these early years of child protection work in Liberia were what really are at the start of all of this, because in those years, this was the early 2000s, much of the international aid system was based on notions of vulnerability. Uh, thankfully, that has that has changed somewhat. Um, but what I saw with the young people was, in fact, they were not the weak, helpless children that were being portrayed on donor reports, but rather very resilient and very capable of coping in, in very intelligent ways with often excruciatingly difficult um, conditions. And so this is what started my interest in the field of resilience. And this is what opened sort of eventually my, my doctoral work on resilient studies and trying to understand how it is that people emerge from the very worst possible conditions in, in pretty remarkable ways. Um, and so this was the focus of my work when I was in the DRC. And over the years, I met countless young people um, and their families who just against all odds continued and retained the courage and the resourcefulness and and 
today, keep going. Um, one of the, I mean, just one of, of the many young people I can think of right now is a young woman named Therese. That's not her, her real name, but she and I worked very closely together over the years. And her story um, was that she had been forcibly abducted by one of the rebel groups um, when she was 15 years old, um, taken as a, as a, a wife and raped endlessly uh, until she became pregnant. Um, when she was pregnant, she managed to escape and found her way back home. And rather than arriving home to the safety and security that she had um, that she'd been dreaming for and longing for, she was rejected because she came back uh, pregnant. Um, so her family didn't want to take her in. So when I met her, she was a quote unquote beneficiary of, of an NGO aid project and she had learned how to become a tailor. So she and I spent many hours in her tailoring workshop where she told me her story and where we just understand what it meant to be a young person in, in Eastern Congo in those days. And she had dreams, big dreams. She wanted to go back to school. She's a very, very intelligent woman um, and go on to university. Um, as years went by, it just was not sustainable for her to support herself and her child and also to continue university education. So she instead sort of transferred her aspirations to her son um, and was doing everything she can, could to get him in school, at least to hope that his future might be brighter than, than her own. Um, and with Therese, you know, I, I, I learned so much. She's such a such a powerful force, such a force of light, such a funny person, um, such a wise person. And she would give me advice uh, endlessly as well. Um, and the good news, I mean, she eventually did get married, was accepted by her family again. I mean, she taught her family the power of forgiveness, which is, which is a pretty powerful process that they went through as well. And now she's married and has another child and is a teacher in her, in her village. Oh, wow. Thank you so much for sharing Therese's um, story and, and life with us. I, I just, it's, I think it's unfathomable to most of us to, to really understand how a, a, a childhood interrupted and, and all of the challenges faced and building that resilience and, and, and fighting for, for what she needed and wanted for herself and certainly for her child. And I'm, I'm really glad to, to hear that she has uh, been able to live a, a fulfilling life um, and, and, and get married. It, it sounds like, um, um, you know, I'm sure these, these things, still haunt her. Um, I'm sure you can't escape something like that, but I'm glad to hear that um, she's doing well. So thank, thank you so much for, for sharing her story with us. Um, and I would imagine there are many, many more stories um, that you'd be able to share um, from your book and from all of your research too. So um, I'll do a book plug for you. So yeah, <laughs> go get Claudia's book. It'll be on the website. <laughs> um, so I'd like to just know, I mean, uh, in writing this book, uh, because it's a very, you're compiling 10 years of research, um, 
you know, you've spent so much time with, with these youth. Uh, did you, you know, and I'm not an author, obviously, but I'm, I would love to, to get your feedback on, you know, were there any challenges that you faced in writing your book? Um, you know, were, were there some obstacles that got in the way, whether it be, um, you know, in the research itself or the writing, writing process? Gosh, yeah, obstacles. Uh, from the time I got the book contract to the day it was published was about 10 years. Um, so, so that it's pretty hard to tell this kind of story. Um, and so how do you articulate the incredible complexity that is lived in the Congo? Um, how do you tell a story that is so intensely personal as it was for me? Um, and so this could be tomes. What it ended up being is 150 pages. Um, and that was very unsatisfying to the experts in the field because First of all, it's too short and it doesn't tell enough. And, you know, there are no answers. And that was sort of the, the most uh, prevalent critique that I got from the reviewers in different stages of, well, you're not telling us how to fix the Congo. Um, and I think that is at the heart of, of so much of why aid and development just isn't fulfilling what it mandates itself to fulfill because this is complex, life is difficult. And if there are any easy answers, uh, beware. <laughs> so I think what it ended up being was my personal story uh, and I had to disclaim it as such. Um, and in that process of, of doing the writing, I was really able to, to reflect on my own place and my own positionality uh, in the world, in the Congo, and, and now as a researcher and, and writer and activist. Thank you. I, you know, I think you know, I actually we should have shared this earlier is that if it's not abundantly clear, Claudia's area of expertise in relating to the sustainable development goals is goal number 16, um, which is peace, justice and strong institutions. And I believe your work also touches on many, many other um, SDGs also. Um, but, you know, you do you do, um, you know, you're, you're in, in the book and the title saying this myth of, you know, and, and I'm wondering if if you have any recommendations, I'm, I'm going to ask you, I know your colleagues are aware and anyone who read the book was asking for those recommendations, but, you know, if you could see a better method or a, um, a better way for the international community and, and, and nonprofit, uh, nonprofits, NGOs and governments, how, how would you see um, them turning the corner into a, a better way in order to support these youth? Yeah. Um, this is a loaded question, and this is only a 20-minute podcast. So. <laughs> it's a great question, and it's one that we must continue struggling with because there are no easy answers, and there are no simple approaches. And that has been one of my biggest critiques of, of the international aid world is that by trying to apply technical solutions, um, of course, you're not going to get the, the intended outcomes because life is complex. And what we see in places like the Congo, it comes from a long history and a history that is deeply embedded in global systems of power and resource control. And you can't separate the story of a young uh, Congolese woman living in a rural area of Eastern DRC with what is going on in the consumption patterns of, of our Europe today. Um, so my first thing is to, to, to be humble and to acknowledge history. Those are, those are what we need to look at. What is our role in all of this? Um, and then perhaps more constructively is to look at our interconnection. 
So me buying my laptop and my cell phone and my electric car actually is perfectly connected to the life of the artisanal miner, you know, digging his daily survival for less than $1 a day in the mines of Eastern Congo. And it's not to say that we don't buy our laptops or phones or electric cars, but that we realize that how we consume is directly impacting the lives of people elsewhere in the world. And this also gives us a place to, to act. It gives us a place to understand what are these global systems of economic exchange? Where is the power? Um, you know, where are my taxes being used to fund the military industrial complex um, that is fueling the wars of so many places today? Um, how are the agricultural policies of the United Nations, of, of the United States or of the European Union actually making life harder for farmers in rural parts of the world? Um, so I think there's there's an uncovering that has to happen that we and it is happening, but has to happen more systemically. It has to be embedded into our education systems and it takes hard work. And I think this is why the the aid world is so uh, persistent in its approaches because these technical responses are easy, but the real work that has to happen is hard um, and it's individual and it's on all of us as citizens, as global citizens to do this work, to do the research, to understand how our consumption patterns affect others in the world. Um, but we need help in doing that. And I think this is somewhere that we can that we can focus our, our advocacy and our, our efforts much closer to home. Yeah, thank you. I, I actually um, am thinking that you've just written the thesis of your next book, Claudia. <laughs> That's how you're going to spend the next 10 years of your yeah. life on educating us. Um, thank you. It's a lot of uh, important things to think about. And I think, you know, the nuances of, you know, cultures and, and, you know, as you were saying, you know, someone that's, uh, you know, in a, in a, in a small village is, you know, maybe not using the playbook one, two, three, um, that, that was provided by an aid worker or institutions, um, that are created, uh, not locally and, and understanding the needs in a local environment, which is nuanced probably from village to village. Everything is very different. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, yeah. Well, I, I, um, I, I know that you're doing some, uh, some, some new research and, um, and on um, young people and how they cope with and make sense of violence and, and looking at just um, mixed methods, including ethnography, biographical narratives, and, and the practice of yoga and pranayama. So, first off, um, I have to admit I had to look up in the dictionary ethnography. So maybe you could share with us a little bit about um, that new word and expand on how the practice of yoga and breathing are incorporated into your research. Wonderful. Okay, so ethnography is it's comes from the field of anthropology, um, and it's it's a way of studying systematically people and culture. Um, it's a way of getting close, up close and personal in in the lives of others. And you know, the old school anthropologists were very um, famous for their participant observations and volumes worth of field notes where they wrote everything they saw from the chicken fights to the, the, the domestic uh, spats between husbands and wives in remote villages. Um, but the kind of ethnography that I work with is actually a, a play on that and it's observant participation, um, which acknowledges that I'm part of what's going on. Um, and so I look at my own positionality as, as a researcher, knowing that I'm part of the system, I'm part of this community where I'm living. And so what does that mean? Um, and so what I'm doing now, in fact, is, is sort of this applied 
research using ethnographic methods where I work with young migrants who have recently arrived in our in a very comfortable, wealthy town of, of, of France. Um, and these are young migrants who have traversed the incredible experiences to get here. They've subverted systems and controls, and they are sort of the, the next the next story, in fact, of, of the young people of sub-Saharan Africa and elsewhere who have not managed to find the, the potential to live their aspirations in, in the global South and so have found their way here. And so they are stories of resilience. Um, and so once they're here, what is their experience? And so what I'm doing with them, uh, it's, it's multiple methods. It's, it's a project that will take years. Um, but one of the ways that I'm sort of approaching their lives is through these yoga workshops um, where we meet and we do yoga together. Uh, so much of what they have lived is is embodied. And my own work as, as a human rights person, like you're, you're talking about violations of the body. Um, so getting into that and helping to transform the violence lived can be facilitated through body work like yoga. Uh, like breath work, um, because sometimes there aren't really words. The words are too big and the concepts are too hard and, and too complex. So by just moving and breathing together, we, we kind of, we kind of, you know, balance on, on new margins and, and discover uh, new ways of expressing and have a lot of fun in the process, actually. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's lovely. And thank you. Thanks for sharing that. I think that um, what you're, um, how you're helping these um, local migrants and uh, that, as you mentioned, traverse, you know, very torturous and, and dangerous uh, paths. Um, it's just really wonderful. And I've, I've seen some of you, you in action and um, just want to compliment on, on that work and helping these young people's lives. You know, we all can remember that one teacher or, um, you know, one person that, that really helped us. And, you know, when we're adults, we can remember, you know, that person really helped me along my journey and, and, perhaps saved me in many, many different ways. Um, so thank you for that work. And we look forward to hearing more about that research um, as, as you um, uh, process it over the next couple of years. So um, in our final moments, um, which I'd love to carry on uh, and speak with you for much, much longer, but um, I got to ask you, what, what, um, what advice would you give other women who are considering a career path in, in, in peace building and, and conflict management? And as you know, your, your, your path is, you know, since you made that decision back in Nashville to switch um, um, fields of study, your trajectory has been quite, um, you know, stayed in this field. So I just wondered if you would be able to give any, again, any advice to anyone, a woman who would be interested in uh, pursuing this as a career Thank you. Um, so go for it. Go and the world needs you. Uh, there is so much work that needs needs doing. And the more of us who can sort of be doing this work, the better. To do it well, we must start with the inner work, If especially going out and working with people who are in great need. Um, the inner work has to lay at the foundations. There needs to be self-understanding. Um, and that is hard work. And I, I don't think uh, culturally, we are equipped to do that. Um, and I, this is another advocacy point, is how do we teach the skills of self-understanding? How do we teach empathy um, and care for others, of course, um, but also for ourselves? And I think as women, this is really important. Um, and it's that self-knowledge that lays the foundations for true compassion and transformative change in the world. 
Um, so that's my advice, actually. Um, if there's anything different that I would have done, I have to say no. Um, this has all been my my journey. Um, all of the, the heartbreak and the near-death experiences and the addictions and the therapy that have come through those, that has all been what has gotten me to right now. Um, and I wouldn't change a thing. It's what's brought me here with you in this moment on this podcast. So I'm pretty grateful for all of it. Oh, lovely. And we're grateful to have you, Claudia, also. Thank you so much. I realize it's really difficult to encapsulate over 20 years of um, work experience, but I want to thank you so much for sharing some of your journey and, and research with us and the challenges you faced and, and advice for future women. Um, and I just want to say thank you. I'm really happy that you uh, agreed to join me today. So thank you so thank much. Thank you, Darcy, for asking me. And thank you to all the listeners who have listened to this this far. Uh, we, it's, it's wonderful to be part of this, this big thing that you are part of keeping going, Darcy. Thank you. So I'd like to thank our listeners also um, for tuning in to Women 17, um, our conversations with global women changing the world one sustainable development goal at a time. Um, our next uh, fortnightly podcast in two weeks time will feature um, Jackie Manukian, who is the co-founder of You For Her, which is a Moroccan Australian social enterprise that ethnically, excuse me, ethically <laughs> sources and sells 100% pure organic argan oil and with a mission of creating a profit for purpose while at the same time reducing inequalities for women. So thank you so much for listening and I welcome your feedback from today's podcast. Uh, be nice, please, though. It's the first one and uh, wish you a happy, safe and productive day. Thank you. Thank you.